Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got uh, yet another news show for you this week. I was hoping to have an interview set up. We actually sat down to record uh, the interview a couple days ago and ran into some technical difficulties. So uh, with any kind of luck, we'll get that sorted out and be able to do it for the next show. And as it turns out, there's really not a lot of big news stories to cover. I've got a few things I'm going to talk to you about today. But that will also let me kind of uh, spend some extra time on one story that caught my attention that... Uh, I think is really relevant and something I've been <laughs> backs up something I've been saying for a long time, and it's about the pros and cons of antivirus software. And basically comes to the same conclusion I did some time ago after listening, you know, to several other experts. And uh, we'll get into that as our main story uh, this week and uh, lead right into the tip of the week. But before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about a couple other stories. Uh, I saw an article about Google One, which is kind of their new Google Drive. It's their online storage and sort of unifies a lot of other storage, like your Gmail and, uh, and other things you might be uh, all saving to your Google account. And I want to talk a little bit about that and why <laughs> why I'm going to recommend you don't use it. We talked uh, not too long ago about uh, some Netgear router bugs that were pretty nasty, and the news just gets worse because it turns out that Netgear's not going to fix many of the models. So we're going to talk about what some of those models are and what you should do about that. And a quick note about your Amazon profile. And yes, if you're an Amazon shopper, you have one, whether you wanted one or not. And I bet a lot of people didn't realize that. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what you're exposing potentially to the world in that profile and how you can change that. In other news, my book has officially gone to publishing. The publishing team within A-Press has picked it up and sent me out a notice that they're you know digging into it. And it'll take them probably, they said four or five weeks to get through it. And at that point, they'll bring it back to me for final approval and some final edits, and then it will go to publishing. So if all goes well, the book will be out in the first or second week of September. And that is not very far away. And uh, I really, really want to see if I can do some kind of interesting book launch stuff around this. So I'm probably going to do a contest maybe around this, maybe some giveaways. Not really sure yet. Uh, I'm really kind of actually looking for some interesting ideas. So if you have an idea, please shoot me a note at feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Or if you happen to know any great places to mention this, to announce this, to market this, I'd be very curious. So I'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show. But for now, let's get to the news. All right, first up, I saw a little article on the uh, website called The Cult of Mac. Uh, being a Mac guy, you shouldn't be surprised that many of the uh, articles I've been finding uh, have come from some of my favorite Mac sites. But this one was about a new offering from Google called Google One. It's actually not super new, but it's going to be it's going to be new for iOS, in other words, iPhone owners here shortly. Uh, they came out with this a couple of years ago, but it's been taking them a while to get together uh, an iPhone version of this service. And the the point of this article was that Google One, when this application comes out for iOS, is going to offer full iPhone backups. So let me just read a quick blurb from this article, and then we'll talk about it. Google on Wednesday committed to a free iOS app that lets iPhone users automatically backup photos, videos, contacts, and calendar events. This goes into the 15 gigabytes of free sto storage offered by this company. This will compete with a service offered by Apple to do the same, uh, i.e. iCloud. From the announcement, it says, quote, Start backing up your iPhone with Google One app and save the stuff you care about using the free 15 gigabytes of storage that comes with your Google account. If you break, lose, or upgrade your phone, you can rest easy knowing that your data is safe in the cloud, unquote. The new features are not yet available for iPhone. In fact, the current version of the iOS app is still called Google Drive, a name the company started phasing out two years ago. 
Still, an updated app will be available soon according to this release. iPhone backups will go into the free 15 gigabytes of storage that comes with every Google account. But Gmail, Google Books, etc. use this same capacity. Of course, Apple already offers to backup iPhone information to iCloud for free. It's built into iOS. But again, many people need additional storage, especially as Apple only provides 5 gigabytes of storage for free. And it says more, but that's the gist of it. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Here's the problem, actually, with both of these solutions. And that is that neither of them provide a way for you, the user, to encrypt that backup in such a way that neither Google nor Apple can view the contents of your cloud drive. And that is something I really wish that Apple would would fix. Um, it's a, it really sticks in my craw that they have not done that, them being such a privacy-oriented company, to at least offer the option uh, for you to add your own password to that, which would mean that even Apple, while storing that information, couldn't access your data. So in that sense, these, these two services have the same problem. But they're two very, very different companies. Uh, and even though, in this case, Google offers three times as much storage for free as Apple, which Apple's got to fix that too. That's their way behind the times on that. I'm really shocked that they have not increased uh, the amount of default free storage they give. But of course, in both cases, they want to sell you more space. And uh, both Google and Apple will gladly, for a monthly fee, send you sell you more space for these backups. But here's the key difference between... Apple and Google, and coming from me, this will be no surprise. Um, Google is an advertising company. Apple is not, uh, which is to say that there is a clear, stark conflict of interest with Google storing anything, <laughs> any data that you you possess, because they are going to want to mine that info, your pictures, your emails, uh, your documents, uh, anything you might store in there, including now in your iPhone backups for information about you. And while if you go to the Google website, which I did looking to see if they, what their privacy promises are around this, you will see that they promise we will never ever sell your information to anybody, which sounds great, except that they don't need to sell it to anybody because Google is the one who's going to be looking at it. And what they do sell is advertising. And so they use your data and then sell the access to that demographic information to whoever will pay for it. So while it may be true that none of that information gets out to data brokers, which is then you know, sold to the highest bidder elsewhere, it's still bad enough that Google has that information. Um, and Apple, uh, while they could theoretically do the same thing, have really no reason to do so and have publicly said that they have no intention of doing so. So, you know, it's free, it's Google, it sounds easy, but I would just avoid it. And it, I, I will admit, uh, I was an early Google services adopter. I still have Gmail accounts. I still use Gcal. Uh, part of that is because so many people I know have it, and I've shared, you know, calendars with others, but I am working on extracting myself from all of that and, uh, you know, just have to draw the line. And certainly when it comes to things like this, this is a great place to... <laughs> to just not take that extra step and start winding things back. And so I would, I would, I have no qualms using iCloud for backup. And now if you're a journalist or a dissident or somebody, you know, where that information, you know, might be sought out by law enforcement or repressive governments or intelligence agencies, or I don't know, you know, in that case, iCloud is not for you. And of course, neither is Google one, but I would like to mention one other product that's free and open source that you can use if you would like to, you know, synchronize some sh uh, some data in the cloud across multiple multiple computers, 
actually, I recommend two things. First of all, un, you know, I wouldn't use Google Drive, Google One, iCloud, Dropbox uh, for this kind of storage and all those other ones, because again, in almost every one of those cases, you can't control the encryption. It is encrypted, but they hold the key, not you. Uh, so I would look at sync.com, S-Y-N-C.com. Uh, they do allow you to set your own password. And furthermore, another product called Cryptomater, Crypt, C-R-Y-P-T-O-M-A-T-E-R. And you can find that at cryptomater.org. It's free. It's open source. Uh, it is donateware, so you can donate money, and I encourage you to do so if you find it useful. Uh, I certainly have. It will let you create basically a, an encrypted folder, and you could put that encrypted folder. You could just put it on your hard drive if you want. Uh, but the, the the key use here is if you put that folder in a in a Dropbox folder and some other service you don't trust, or or in Sync.com even if you if you want to be super double careful and put a double lock on all your information, put a folder in there, and tell Cryptomator to encrypt that folder. Uh, and then even even if you don't trust Sync and you don't believe that adding a password will keep them from seeing your stuff, this will. It's taking a lockbox and putting it inside of another lockbox. <laughs> so anyway, it's a great tool. It's free, and I highly recommend it. It's it's um, if you have anything that you want to store in the cloud and you want to keep it secure. All right, next up, uh, some other bad news for those of you with Netgear routers. We found that article not too long ago where like 80 plus different Netgear models had some severe security problems and Netgear started rolling out uh, fixes for these. Uh, and then unfortunately, recently it came to light that they have said they're not going to fix them all. And in particular, uh, models older than a certain age, they have said that they are not going to produce fixes for, which means if you have one of those, you're in trouble. Let me read this article real quick from Tom's guide, and then I'll, uh, I'll talk about it on the backside. 45 different Netgear Wi-Fi routers and home gateways will never get security patches despite having serious security flaws that were disclosed in June, the company has now confirmed. If you use or own one of these routers, it's best just to throw it out and get a new one. These routers were among the nearly 80 Netgear models prone to total takeover by hackers who could exploit flaws in their administrative interfaces. The Netgear router flaws were revealed in mid-June. Netgear has since been pushing out firmware updates and hotfixes for individual models one by one, but until last week it wasn't clear which models would never get the fixes. Now we know. Netgear updated its advisory on the issue July 20th with a grid listing each affected model and whether it would get a temporary hotfix, a full production release firmware patch, or, sad to say, that the model was quote-unquote outside security support period and would get nothing. One catch, however, Netgear is terrible at communicating the actual model number of a router to consumers. So while you may think your model is, for example, Nighthawk Smart Wi-Fi AC1900, those are just marketing terms used to describe both the R6900 and the R7000. Go to your router, flip it around, and look for a sticker on the bottom or backside. That will have the model number printed on it. Some model numbers have variants, such as R6300 or R6300V1, or R6300V2. That means something's different about the internal hardware. In this case, V1 is outside the security support period while V2 gets a hotfix. A Netgear representative provided us with this statement, quote, Netgear has provided firmware updates with fixes for all supported projects previously disclosed by ZDI and Grimm. Uh, those were the security researchers. The remaining products included in the published list are outside of our support window. In this specific in instance, the parameters were based on the latest sale date of the product into the channel, which was set at three years or longer, end quote. So that's fancy PR speak for if it's too old, we're not going to fix it. 
Now, there was a huge list of model numbers here. As the as the title to the article said, there's like 45 different models that uh, will never, ever be fixed. Uh, I, I'm not going to read that full list here. Uh, you can find the link in the show notes, or you could just go to the Netgear website. But I did look through the list, and here are some of the numbers that I, you know, I've recalled seeing in the past, uh, which may, may indicate that they're popular models. Uh, and I'll just list a few of those here, and then uh, you should go and look at the longer list. Uh, AC1450... D6300, R4500, R6200, R6200 V2, R6300 V1, R7300 DST, and then a whole bunch of others. Some of the prefixes are WGR, uh, WN, or DGN. They've got a ton of routers, all with different names. It's really confusing. And like the article said, the, the marketing name is actually not the, the real model name. So to get the real model name, you're going to have to look at your router on the back and, and look for the model name. Uh, and go off of that, and then go check the list. And they're right. They're absolutely right. If if your model is not supported, if they are not going to provide fixes, you need to just get a new router. And we've talked about this a couple times lately. There's been lots of router stories. And what you really need to look for if you're in the market for a new router, you know, obviously the first thing that most people look at is, you know, what's the speed or what version of 802.1 does it support, which... They've gotten rid of that, thankfully, now, and it's just called Wi-Fi 6 or Wi-Fi 5 and some of these other things. And, of course, cost. You'll look at cost. But uh, look for router models that have automatic software updates built in, at least as an option, hopefully on by default. These things are just way too important, and uh, hackers love to uh, to break into these things. So uh, you're going to want the latest, uh, latest and greatest and the, the, the really only practical way to do that is for the router to update itself. Short of that, you might at least register your router with the company so that when these kind of security vulnerabilities come out, they will notify you by email and let you know when those fixes are available. All right, next up. I saw this article in USA Today, and while I think I you know was vaguely aware of this, I think it's interesting, and I bet a lot of people don't think about it, but uh, and that is your Amazon profile. And if you've, got, if you've ever bought anything on Amazon, you probably have a profile. Uh, certainly if you're an Amazon Prime member. Uh, what does that profile contain? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, and I bet it might contain more than you realize. So that's covered by this uh, this article. And I, this is these are the key parts of the article. It was longer than this, but let me read the key parts of this article from USA Today. As an Amazon shopper, you have a username and a password. That's standard for any site. You may not realize that as an Amazon customer, you also have a profile visible to other Amazon users. Your public profile is created automatically, whether you want it or not, and it contains your comments and any ratings that you've left on products purchased on its site. If you reviewed any food delivered through Amazon restaurants, those reviews are also visible, even though they shut down this service last year. Your biographical information and other site interactions are also posted to your profile. Thankfully, your public profile doesn't include your purchases or browsing history, but it's still very informative. To control what is visible on your, on your public profile, follow these steps. Uh, sign into your Amazon account and click on Accounts and Lists. And you have to click on it. You can't just get the, the pull-down menu. You actually have to click on that to bring up the full list of stuff. Uh, then you under Ordering and Shopping Preferences, click Your Amazon Profile. Then click the orange box marked Edit Your Profile. Here you'll see Edit Profile and Edit Privacy Settings. Spend time here and look around. You can select various options to review, such as your About Me section, shopping lists, wish lists, any pets you added, etc., be sure that you check your community activity section, too. I recommend you anonymize as much of this information here as you can. 
then it goes on to tell you how to actually see what other people see when they look at your profile, which is a great feature. Uh, so basically, you go back to your accounts and lists, you go back to the ordering and shopping preferences, go back to your profile. Uh, and then at the top, um, like next to your profile picture, even if you don't have one, is a little thing that says, see what others see. Click on that. And that will show you what your profile looks to others. And that way you can verify that you've locked it down as far as you want to lock it down. And you're only showing the things that you want to show on your profile. All right. So the main story uh, this week, and I want to spend a little time on this. So we're going to, it's really actually quite a long article. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read a good bit of it. Um, and it's the title of the article is you don't need to buy antivirus software. And this is from the New York times. It's actually from, from the wire cutter, which was uh, bought by the New York times. I love the site wire cutter. They've got some really good reviews there. And kind of like the review they did of VPNs a while back that I made such a big deal out of um, and really thought they did a really good job on reviewing VPNs. Uh, here they come talk about antivirus software. And the title there is key. It says you don't need to buy antivirus software. It doesn't say you don't need antivirus software, though it comes close to saying that. And we're going to get into that in the article. So uh, let, let's just dive in. And I, like I said, this is kind of an expurgated version. And um, But it's the key parts. And then after I read through this, I'll kind of give you my take on this. We set out to do a standard wired cutter guide to the best antivirus app, so we spent months researching software, reading reports for independent testing labs and institutions, consulting experts on safe computing. And after all that, we learned that most people should neither pay for a traditional antivirus suite such as McAfee, Norton, or Kaspersky, nor use free programs like Avira, Avast, or ABG. The quote-unquote best antivirus for most people to buy, it turns out, is nothing. Windows Defender, Microsoft's built-in tool, is good enough for most people. We spent dozens of hours reading results from independent labs like AV Test and AV Comparatives, feature articles from many publications such as Ars Technica and PC Mag, and white papers and releases from institutions and groups like Usenix and Google's Project Zero. We also read up on the viruses, ransomware, spyware, and other malware of recent years to learn what threats try to get onto most people's computers today. Over the years, we've also spoken with security experts, IT professionals, and the information security team of the New York Times, Wirecutter's parent company, to filter out the noise of the typical antivirus table tennis headlines. Antivirus is increasingly useless. No, actually, it's still pretty handy. No, antivirus is unnecessary. Wait, no, it isn't. And so on. And I'll just stop right there to totally agree, because uh, I've done the same research. And uh, you, you look around and you get so many differing opinions. You know, a lot of websites just assume you need it and focus uh, on reviewing the products, assuming that you must have something. So that, you know, they don't even address the, they don't even address the option of maybe not needing it. And of course, a lot of those places are, are quote unquote affiliates and by, you know, referring you to those websites to buy that stuff, they get a kickback. But even others, you know, other sites I've read that are a little more unbiased, you know, still come down on various sides of this argument. Um, but I'll, I'll save my opinions for the end. Let me get back to the article. Ultimately, relying on any one app to protect your system, data, and privacy is a bad bet, especially when almost every antivirus app has proven vulnerable on occasion. No antivirus tool, paid or free, can catch every malicious bit of software that arrives on your computer. You also need secure passwords, two-factor logins, data encryption, system-wide backups, automatic software updates, and smart privacy tools added to your browser. You need to be mindful of what you download and to download software only from official sources, such as the Microsoft App Store and the Apple Mac App Store whenever possible. You should avoid downloading and opening email attachments unless you know what they are. It's insufficient for a security app to just protect against a single set of known viruses. There is a potentially infinite number of malware variations that have been crypted, in other words, encoded to look like regular pro trusted programs, and that deliver their system-breaking goods once opened. 
Although antivirus firms constantly update their detection systems to outwit crypting services, they'll never be able to keep up with malware makers intent on getting through. And let me just stop there before I forget, because I want to mention this. Uh, the guys that make malware have gone to really great lengths to avoid being spotted. So if you think about this, how do, you know, how do antivirus software makers, you know, test their products? Well, what they do is they probably find a whole lot of malware, which is actually, believe it or not, easily available uh, from a lot of security research sites. You can get, you can get this malware and basically they put it on these test computers and they try to infect them. Well, so how do they really do that? So do they really buy a whole bunch of fresh computers and install this stuff on it and their product and then try to get them infected? No, no, not really. That's not that's rather expensive. So often what they do is they will run a virtual machine, uh, a virtual version of a, of a PC or a Mac, and then run it in there and try to infect that. And then whenever that's done, they can actually roll back to a snapshot. And it's like going back in time, like that never happened. That's a much more efficient way to do it. And this is, that's what I use when I write my book and try to come up with my screenshots. Um, I have virtual machines of all these different software images that I use instead of buying an individual PC or Mac strictly for this, um, for this process where I have to clean it from scratch and install everything from scratch, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the malware people know this. And so there are actually very clever ways to determine whether or not your software is running in a virtual machine or on a real machine. And so a lot of these malware programs, before they actually do anything malicious, will run all these checks to say, you know, am I on a test environment right now? And if I am, act normal. Be cool. <laughs> Don't get caught. Which makes it, of course, more difficult for the antivirus software writers to, uh, you know, to test their products to see if they can actually catch these things. And that's just one example. I mean, these, you know, it's... It's really quite amazing what these, uh, what lengths these guys will go to, um, to, to hide their software. Anyway, let me get back to the article. The word malware just means bad software and encompasses anything that runs on your computer with unintended and usually harmful consequences. In contrast, antivirus is an out-of-date term that software makers still use because viruses, Trojan horses, and worms were huge attention-getting threats in the 1990s and early 2000s. Technically, all viruses are a kind of malware, but not all pieces of malware are viruses. So why shouldn't you install a full antivirus suite from a known brand just to be on the safe side? Well, for many good reasons. First, vulnerabilities. The nature of how antivirus apps provide protection is a problem. As TechRepublic explains, quote, security software necessarily requires high access privileges to operate effectively. Though when it itself is insecure or otherwise malfunctioning, it becomes a much higher liability due to the extent to which it has control over the system, unquote. Symantec and Norton, Kaspersky, and other major antivirus vendors have all suffered from critical vulnerabilities in the past. 2. Performance Antivirus software is notorious for slowing down computers, blocking the best security features of other apps, such as Firefox and Chrome browsers, popping up with distracting reminders and upsells for subscriptions or updates, and installing potentially insecure add-ons, such as browser extensions, without clearly asking you for permission. And 3. Privacy Free antivirus software has all the above problems and adds privacy concerns. Good security is not free, and free-to-download apps are more likely to collect data about your computer and how you use it and to sell your private browsing data, as well as to install browser extensions that hijack your search and break your security and add an advertisement to your email signature. For these reasons, we don't recommend that most people spend the time or money to add traditional antivirus software to their personal computer. Two caveats to our recommendation. First, if you have a laptop provided by your work, school, or another organization, and, and it has antivirus or other security tools installs, do not uninstall them. 
Organizations have system-wide security needs and threat models that differ from those of personal computers, and they have to account for varying levels of technical aptitude and safe habits among their staff. Do not make your IT department's hard job even more difficult. Second, people with sensitive data to protect, medical, financial, or otherwise, or with browsing habits that take them into riskier parts of the Internet have unique threats to consider. Our security and habit recommendations are still a good starting point, but such situations may call for more intense measures than we cover here. Okay, and then it goes on to talk specifically about Windows and Mac. And let me just read those, and then we'll talk, and uh, then I'll kind of give you my opinion here, or add to this. If you use Windows 10, you already have a robust antivirus and anti-malware app, Windows Defender, installed and enabled by default. The AV Test Institute's independent testing gave Windows Defender a recommendation in December 2019 and a near-perfect rating in performance. Because Windows Defender is a default app for Windows 10 by the same company that makes the operating system, it doesn't have to upsell you or nag you about subscriptions, and it doesn't need the same kind of certificate trickery to provide deeply rooted protection for your system. And I'll talk about that in a second. It doesn't install browser extensions or plugins and other apps without asking. No antivirus software consistently receives perfect scores from every test lab every month at every test, but Windows Defender typically does as well as or better than its competition. It's free and it's enabled by default. Now for Max, it says... Due to a combination of demographics, historical precedent, and tighter controls, Macs have historically been less vulnerable to infection than Windows computers, for a few reasons. First, people have far fewer Macs than Windows computers. Over the past year, 17% of web-browsing desktop computers ran macOS, compared with 78% of all Windows versions combined, so macOS is a less lucrative target for parties making malware. Second, Macs include a wider variety of useful first-party apps by default, and both macOS and downloaded apps receive updates through the Apple's own app, app Store. Windows PC owners are more accustomed to downloading both software and hardware drivers from the Internet, as well as providing permissions to third-party apps, which are more likely to be malicious. Third, newer versions of Windows must make concessions to allow apps made for older versions of Windows to run, creating a complicated set of legacy systems to secure. In contrast, macOS has seen less change since the introduction of macOS 10, and Apple has been less hesitant to render apps made for older versions obsolete. In fact, with the introduction of macOS Catalina in 2019, the company rendered older 32-bit apps useless. And finally, Catalina also adds security features that makes running malicious software difficult, including requiring apps to request a variety of permissions, such as access to files, microphones, cameras, and other services as you install them. This makes it pretty difficult to install something you don't mean to. And then it wraps up with one more recommendation. It says, If you spend a lot of time in sketchier corners of the internet, or if you think you may have already downloaded malicious software that Windows Defender didn't catch, we've found that Malwarebytes is, is mostly unintrusive and can identify malware that Windows Defender may have missed, or malware that it has made its way onto a Mac. But the paid version is not necessary for most people. All right, so that, that article almost exactly parallels an article that I wrote two or three years ago called The Pros and Cons of Antivirus Software, uh, which you can find on my website. And because it's been such a popular article, I, I can tell which of the articles I've written um, have been most visited. I've been trying to keep that one up to date. And honestly, it's, <laughs> it, it very closely follows what, uh, what this article just said. And that is basically to say the cons, for the most part, outweigh the pros, with some caveats and exceptions. On Windows, Windows comes with one for free, and it's made by Microsoft. It's already built in. There's no reason not to use it, and it actually does quite well, and that is Windows Defender. If you happen to be on an older uh, PC running Windows 7 or Windows 8, you really need to update to Windows 10. But if you can't do that right away, uh, you can download Microsoft Security Essentials, which I don't think is installed by default, but it's also free. It's also from Microsoft, and it's kind of equivalent to Windows Defender. 
So basically, if you're running Windows, if you're on a PC, uh, you get some antivirus software for free from Microsoft that is just as good, if not better, than some of the paid uh, some of the paid versions. Uh, so just use that. Furthermore, because of some of the problems with some of these other antivirus software, because the privacy and security issues, uh, I the analogy I like to use here is it's like hiring a bodyguard. Um, if you hire a bodyguard for that bodyguard to do their job. They need 100% full, unfettered access to your life. They need to know all your secrets. They need to go everywhere you go. They need to be able to get into anything you have access to. So that means, like antivirus software, you need to trust them 100%. Unlike a bodyguard, you can't get antivirus software to sign to sign an NDA or a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, in other words, if you hire a bodyguard... If you're rich enough or, you know, that you need such a thing, you can have them sign all sorts of legal paperwork saying that they will not disclose any of your secrets to anybody else under penalty of fines and jail time and whatever else. Good luck getting Norton or McAfee or Kaspersky or any of those other tools, especially the free ones, to give you any such guarantees. And I have definitely talked to people in the the ad industry that have said that they know for a fact that a lot of these antivirus software, especially the free ones, you know, that install a browser plugin supposedly for security, you know, just mine you for data and, and sell your browsing history and other information to because I got to make money somewhere. This stuff is really isn't free, right? So um, for Macs, it's a little different. Um, as you know, as the article says, Macs, you can argue that whether or not they're actually from a purely technical standpoint, are they more secure than than Windows PCs? You know, I think it's a give and take. I think both Windows and Mac OS have lately installed uh, created many new security-oriented features that have been very good and very welcome uh, that do make them safer in general. And yes, in particular, Catalina, which is the current latest version of Mac OS, though the, the new version, Big Sur, will be out in September or October, uh, added a whole lot more protections, in particular uh, permissions requests. And you've probably noticed this if you've upgraded to Catalina because it's been, you know, apps that you're used to running without any sort of interruption now are asking, hey, you know, I want to access your desktop or, hey, I want to ask access your downloads folder or, hey, I want to access your contacts. And, you know, and you have to give it explicit permission for all those things. And those are juicy targets for um, uh, some malware folks. So, you know, it's hard to get past that. Not impossible, by the way. But it does make it harder for malware writers um, to you know, get installed unnoticed. And one thing I did want to get back to, because it mentions here, and that was what they called certificate trickery. And this is highly technical, um, but I'll try to make uh, you know simplify the explanation. And that is, whenever you make an encrypted connection over the internet, which is to say you're going to an HTTPS website, the S being for secure, uh, that connection between you and whatever website you're going to is encrypted. And the way the encryption is set up is that the other end, the server that you're trying to access, has a security certificate that they uh, have created that has all this super fancy crypto stuff built into it that makes it basically impossible to forge. What that means is it varies depending on what kind of certificate that they purchase. Uh, the bare bones certificate, all that really says is, yeah, this server is the one you uh, you think it is, and your communications are encrypted. It doesn't necessarily mean that the site you're going to is the site they claim it to be. Now, you can get fancier, more expensive certificates uh, that do offer some of those authentication features that you know make sure that it actually is the site you want to go to. Anyway, 
in order for some of these antivirus programs to inspect something you might be downloading or uh, things that might be coming back to your computer from a website that could be malicious, they need to be able to peek into that encrypted connection. And so what a lot of them have to do for that, for that to work is they have to become what's called a man in the middle. And so effectively they have to insert themselves into that encrypted communication. And to do that, they install on your computer, uh, their own kind of a global certificate. And what that allows them to do is when you go to, let's say Google, instead of going directly to Google, you go first through the antivirus software, which pretends to be Google by offering you a certificate that you accepted when you installed the software that basically lets that software impersonate any other website on the planet. So that when your browser thinks it's going to Google, it's actually going first to your anti to your antivirus software. And then the antivirus software turns around and connects you to your original destination. So there's really a two part connection there and of, of which they are now in the middle. There's an encrypted connection just locally on your computer from your browser to the antivirus software. And then it's unencrypted so that the antivirus software can look at the contents of your communications back and forth. And then it re-encrypts the connection from the antivirus software to wherever it was you were originally trying to get to. It's a man in the middle. And unfortunately, that the process by which it creates those certificates and then allows it to impersonate other websites also opens you up for all sorts of nasty attacks. And there have been documented cases in the past of antivirus software screwing that up to the point where you can't trust any website you go to. For me, that alone is a reason not to use these third-party antivirus software applications. Um, now, some of them, as you're installing them, will ask you to configure it or give you the option to do a custom configuration install. And you can tell it not to do um, live web antivirus checking. Uh, they all have different marketing names for it, so it's kind of hard to figure it out. And you, even then, you don't know for sure that they're not doing it. Um, but hopefully, if you deselect that option, that will prevent them from installing this global certificate that allows them to m pretend to be other websites. I know. <laughs> that, that's really technical and really complicated. So at the end of the day, uh, my advice to you is unless you fall under the, one of those weird categories, like you're using a PC, um, you know, provided by your employer, uh, you know, then you need to go with whatever they've got. Or if you happen to be the kind of person that for whatever reason, because you want to or need to do some shadier things or visit some shadier websites, then in that case, you know, may, maybe the trade-offs work in your favor. Uh, again, though, if you're on Windows, Windows Defender should be enough. So this really only comes to play if you're on a Mac and deciding whether or not you want to install antivirus software. Um, now, realize, of course, that under the covers, Macs do have some antivirus features. They don't really tout them that often. They do have some built-in protections, some of the ones we've talked about here today. But at the end of the day, if you're still worried, especially if you think that you may already be infected, then I agree with the article. My usually go-to there is Malwarebytes, and you can download their free version of Malwarebytes, which will do an on-demand scan of your computer looking for malware. Uh, the free version won't run constantly in the background um, like regular antivirus software might. But if you're worried that you might have already downloaded something, uh, you can just download the free Malwarebytes application that's there for both Mac and Windows. 
Uh, and it's a great second opinion if you're on Windows, uh, or it's a good after-the-fact check if you're on a Mac if you're worried. While we're talking about it, one more interesting thing that, that I'll bring up that a lot of people may not be aware of is there's a website called VirusTotal. That's just like it sounds, all one word, VirusTotal.com. And you can, if you download a suspicious attachment and you're worried that it might be infected, you can actually upload that file to this website and they will scan it for you. Not with one, not with two, but with like two dozen or three dozen different uh, antivirus scanners and give you a report that says if any of those scanners believe that that file might be malicious. It's not perfect, but, you know, instead of a second opinion, it's like 40 second opinions. Um, you know, and if it says it's okay, uh, then I'd say it's okay. Every once in a while, by the way, you will get some hits where like one one service might think that it's um, it could be malware where the rest of them don't. You know, at that point, you can make the call, and I probably still would be okay with that. But behind the scenes, it's actually, these are really like Norton and McAfee and uh, Vira and Avast. And a lot of these companies basically provide their software to these guys. And because they get a benefit from this, from this too, uh, this is a way for them to get notified if there's some new malware out there that they're not catching uh, or just to get samples. And like I was saying before, that actually is easy, it's pretty easy to get samples of malware out there for research purposes. This is another way that they collect samples. You can actually also use this service to uh, inspect URLs or web addresses. If you think the website you're going to might have malware on it, you can put that uh, the web address, the URL, into their scanner and have it look at that before you go there yourself. It's really a great service, and a lot of people probably don't know about it, so I thought I'd pass that on as well. So I've already maybe kind of given you the tip of the week, but I will add one more thing to this, and that is uninstalling whatever you already have. And luckily on a Mac, it's, it's not an issue. It doesn't come with any of this nagware, bloatware, crapware uh, that unfortunately comes pre-installed on a lot of PCs that you buy. And you know, they get paid to do that. So, you know, HP and Acer and Asus and, you know, all these makers of Windows PCs get a kickback for having these applications like Norton pre-installed on your computer that all come with these, you know, limited time free trials and then they nag you to death, you know, uh, you know, about keeping it up and subscribing and, you know, they make money from that. So it can be a real, real pain to uninstall all of these things, but I do suggest that you do it. And I did, I just actually bought myself a PC. I don't, I don't use windows that often, but I, I bought myself a little PC laptop to play with. And, um, you know, it came with a lot of this crapware on it. One of them was Norton was pre-installed. And so I went to uninstall it. And, you know, so you, you, you click on the ads, you know, the uninstall from the, from the system settings and it brings up the uninstaller and it, you know, this is what we call dark patterns. So on the uninstall window, you know, it says, you know, two options. I plan for uninstalling your uninstall preference. Uh, you have, you could either, I plan to reinstall. So keep my settings or uninstall Norton and remove all my user data. So it's already kind of implying that you might want to come back. Uh, and then below that there's a checkbox. Uh, I can't remember if this was checked by default or not, but the checkbox says get layered protection by allowing Norton security scan to be activated and periodically scan your computer for viruses, spyro, malware, and other threats, yada, yada, yada. Um, basically Norton, Norton security scan is like their freeware version uh, of Norton antivirus. And so I guess what that's kind of saying is, well, you know, uninstall the for pay thing, but leave the, the free one on there for me, which I am sure it would keep nagging you. And I still wouldn't trust. And again, so it's still try to, you know, again, these are dark patterns trying to get you to not quite go away a hundred percent, you know, but then, so then. You click on uninstall Mike Norton. That's the button. And then you're not done because then it brings up another window. 
and it says you have 30 days remaining remaining on your subscription you know and then it says please take a two-minute survey to share why you're leaving us so you know it doesn't do it on the first thing you got to tell it again to do it and then it still gives you this this nagging doubt you know like mm, do i really want to do this you know and it you know it it's it's wanting me to justify why I do it. Take a survey and tell us why you're doing this. So anyway, just just get rid of it, uninstall it, and then make sure that uh, you've got Windows Defender. I think by default it will kick in when you uninstall Norton, but just make sure that you've got that set up uh, after you uninstall Norton or McAfee or whatever comes with it, um, and give up your prescription or your subscription. Make sure you unsubscribe if you already have, because uh, I'm sure they will gladly keep charging you for it whether you're using it or not. So make sure that you've unsubscribed. Uh, and then uninstall their software. All right, that'll do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, as always. Uh, hopefully my interview with uh, somebody from the EFF will be next week. And if not, I've got lots of feelers out for other interviews coming too, so hopefully we've got plenty more on the docket to come. Uh, I want to consider talking about password strength as the tip of the week this week. I did a really... Uh, interesting, I think, <laughs> article for the blog and the newsletter on this uh, about password haystacks. Uh, so if you're not a subscriber to the newsletter or if you haven't been to the blog, you might go check that out at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. Uh, it's very interesting, and there's a tool there that I refer you to uh, that's really interesting for checking out password strength and understanding you know, how much stronger you know, it makes your password. You add special characters, and when you add that extra character, it's very, very interesting. So uh, check that out at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. And if you want to get those things sent to you automatically every couple of weeks, you can sign up for the newsletter while you're there. Again, I'll remind you, the book launch is coming up soon. I would love to get uh, ideas from you guys on how so maybe some interesting ways to market that or some interesting, uh, some sort of a contest or giveaway I might be able to do around that. You can send me uh, your thoughts at feedback at firewallsdontstopdragons.com. Also, uh, I'm very curious if you've got questions about security or privacy issues or if you have topics that you'd like to have covered on the show. Uh, at any point, you can always send me a note about that, and I will definitely get to those. I may not reply to all of them, but I will uh, do my best to read all of them, uh, and I'd love to get your feedback. As always, you can get the show notes for these shows at podcast.firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Uh, and if you go to patreon.com and you'd like to help me out further, uh, I would very much appreciate that. Go to patreon.com and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And that'll do it. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay home. Wear those masks when you go out. It's not just for you, it's for them. Try to stay sane while you're out there staying at home. I know this has been a tough time, and unfortunately the, the end is not really in sight yet. So... Um, Hang in there, hunker down, and uh, as always, don't get caught with the drawbridge down. <laughs> <laughs>